Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions and personal experiences, and put everything together to share with all of you. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. Today's episode, episode number 64, is Mixed DNA and Bob Marley. Since February 6th is Bob Marley's birthday, we figured now would be a great time to feature this iconic singer that is so well known across the world. Robert Nesta Marley would have been 78 years old this year. He was a Jamaican singer, musician, and songwriter, considered one of the pioneers of reggae music. He was born February 6, 1945, in Nine Mile, Jamaica, at the farm of his maternal grandfather in the parish of St. Anne. His parents were Norval Sinclair Marley and Sadella Malcolm. His father, Norval, was from Crowborough, East Sussex in England, and his mother, the then 18-year-old, was employed as a plantation overseer. Marley's parents were married, but he seldom saw his father, who was a captain with the British Royal Marines. His father died of a heart attack when Bob was 10 years old, and his mother went on to remarry a civil servant, Edward Booker, from the U.S., giving Bob two half-brothers, Richard and Anthony. During today's episode, we'll cover tidbits from Bob Marley's life and career, including the Whalers, his family, and his illnesses and death. We'll also talk about Marley's legacy, his widow, Rita Marley, and the Marley matriarch, and how reggae music transcended Jamaica to become a popular genre of music all across the world. Marley's ongoing distillation of early ska, rock steady, and reggae musical forms blossomed in the 70s into an electrifying rock-influenced hybrid that made him an international superstar. Marley's poetic lyrics that are so well-known all over the world were shaped by the countryside and his music by the tough West Kingston ghetto streets. His maternal grandfather was not just a prosperous farmer, but also a bush doctor, adept in the mysticism-steeped herbal healing that guaranteed respect in Jamaica's Back Hill country. During his early teen years, Marley, his mother, his mother's new boyfriend, Thaddeus Livingston, and his son Neville, later known as Bunny Whaler, who Marley was childhood friends with, all moved and lived in Trenchtown, a desperately poor slum area. Marley and Bunny always had an interest in music, and now they were living together under the same roof. Their explorations deepened to include ska music and the latest R&B from the United States radio stations whose broadcast reached Jamaica. Marley and Bunny formed a vocal group with another friend, Peter Tosh. Originally, their group was known as the Teenagers, followed by the Wailing Rude Boys, and then finally just the Wailers. Joe Higgs, who was a successful member of the vocal act Higgs and Wilson, lived nearby and encouraged Marley to keep at his craft. He helped the group harmonize their vocals and started to teach Marley to play the guitar. In 1962, Marley recorded four songs, including One Cup of Coffee and Terror. Three of the songs were released on Beverly's, which was a Chinese-Jamaican-owned record label that helped launch the careers not only of Bob Marley, but Jimmy Cliff as well. In 1963, the Whalers included Bob Marley and Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh, both of whom we've already mentioned, but also Junior Braithwaite, Beverly Kelso, and Cherry Smith. They were discovered by record producer Coxon Dodd and for his label. They released the single Simmer Down, which became a number one hit in Jamaica, selling an estimated 70,000 copies. Simmer Down was an urgent anthem from the shantytown precincts of the Kingston underclass. It played an important role in recasting the agenda for stardom in Jamaican music. No longer did one have to parrot the stylings of overseas entertainers. 
It was possible to write raw, uncompromising songs for and about the disenfranchised people of the West Indian slums. Now regular recording music for Studio One, they found themselves working with established Jamaican musicians including Ernest Wranglin, Jackie Mitu, and saxophonist Roland Alfonso. By 1966, group members Braithwaite, Kelso, and Smith left the Whalers, leaving the core trio, Marley, Whaler, and Tosh, as the members we know to this day. In the early 60s, away from his mother's Catholic influence as she had moved to the United States, he became interested in Rastafari beliefs. Thanks to their hit single, Simmer Down, Marley and the island nation of Jamaica transformed, engendering the urban poor with a pride that would become a pronounced source of identity and a catalyst for class-related tension in Jamaica culture, as with the Whalers' Rastafarian faith, a creed popular among the impoverished people of the Caribbean, who worshipped the late Ethiopian emperor Haile Selassie as the African redeemer foretold in popular quasi-biblical prophecy. More on the Rastafari movement a bit later in the episode. In 1966, Bob Marley married Cuban-born Alfarita Constantina Rita Anderson in Kingston, and they lived in Wilmington, Delaware, in the U.S. near his mother for a short time. During this time, he worked as a DuPont lab assistant and on the assembly line as a forklift operator at a Chrysler plant in Newark, under the alias Donald Marley. Rita and Bob Marley had three children together, Sadella, Ziggy, and Stephen, and Bob adopted two of Rita's children from previous relationships. Sharon and Stephanie, and gave them his name. Bob Marley also had several other children with different women. His official website acknowledges 11 children. The ones we haven't mentioned yet are Robbie, Rohan, Karen, Julian, Kamani, and Damien. After a few creative and financial disagreements with different producers and managers between the years of 1968 and 1972, the Whalers, which now included Rita Marley as backup, recut some old tracks with Jad Records in Kingston and London in order to commercialize their sound. While in London, Bob and Rita lived at 34 Ridgemont Gardens in Bloomsbury, London, and in 1972, the Whalers signed with CBS Records and embarked on their first UK tour with soul singer Johnny Nash. Due to this time in the UK, Bob Marley was getting familiar with pop music and doo-wop, as him and the Whalers had yet to establish themselves outside of Jamaica. Island music needed Bob Marley just as much as he needed them. The Whalers returned to Jamaica to record at Harry J's in Kingston, and the result was the album Catch a Fire. This was the first time in history that a reggae band had access to the state-of-the-art studio equipment and were accorded the same care and attention as their rock and roll pop music peers. Catch a Fire was released worldwide in April 1973, and was packaged like a rock and roll record with a unique Zippo lighter lift top. Initially, the album sold 14,000 copies and received positive critical response. Tracks from Catch a Fire include Concrete Jungle and Stir It Up. The success of the album was followed later that year by the album Burnin', which included I Shot the Sheriff. Eric Clapton was impressed with the album and chose to record a cover version of I Shot the Sheriff which became his first U.S. hit since Layla two years earlier. It reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on September 14, 1974. Many Jamaicans were not fans of the new reggae sound on the Catch a Fire album, but both reggae and rock audiences fell in love with the Trenchtown style of the Burnin album. Island Records founder Chris Blackwell gifted his Kingston residence and the company headquarters at 56 Hope Road to Marley. The property would go on to be Marley's office, home, 
and Tough Gong Studios. The following year, the Whalers were scheduled to open 17 shows in the U.S. for Sly and the Family Stone. After four shows, they were fired because they were more popular than the main headliner. The Whalers disbanded in 1974 with each member pursuing a solo career. Despite the group splitting up, Bob continued to record as Bob Marley and the Whalers. His new backup included various musicians and the I-3s, made up of wife Rita, Judy Mowat, and Marcia Griffiths on backup vocals. In 1975, Marley had his international breakthrough with his first hit outside of Jamaica with a live version of No Woman No Cry from the live album, which also included tracks Trenchtown Rock and Get Up Stand Up. Live was followed up with this U.S. breakthrough album, Rastaman Vibration, in 1976, which reached the top 50 on the Billboard Soul charts. In 1976, two days before a concert that was organized by the then Prime Minister Michael Manley, an attempt was made to kill Marley. Marley and his wife Rita, along with their manager Don Taylor, were wounded by an assault in their home. Taylor and Rita sustained serious injuries, but later made full recoveries. Marley received minor wounds in the chest and the arm. The attempt on his life was thought to have been politically motivated. Regardless, the concert proceeded and an injured Marley performed as scheduled. When he was asked how he performed, he responded, The people who are trying to make this world worse aren't taking a day off. How can I? Shortly after that incident and concert, after a period of recovery and writing in the Bahamas, Marley arrived in England where he spent two years in self-imposed exile. While in England, he recorded the albums Exodus and Kaya. Exodus stayed on the British album charts for 56 consecutive weeks and included the hit singles Exodus, Jammin', and One Love. Also, during this time in London, he was arrested and convicted of possession of a small quantity of cannabis, which we'll talk about later on. Marley and Cannabis, not the arrest. The album, Survival, was released in 1979, and it was a defiant and politically charged album with tracks like Zimbabwe and Africa Unite. Marley's last studio album was Uprising, released in 1980. It was one of his most religious productions and included Redemption Song. Each song on that album referenced his Rastafarian beliefs. Altogether, under the name Bob Marley and the Wailers, 11 albums were released, 4 live and 7 studio. In 1977, Marley was diagnosed with a type of malignant melanoma under a toenail. The lesion was not primarily caused by a soccer injury, as many believe, but was instead a symptom of an already existing cancer. After two doctor's appointments and a biopsy, it was confirmed as acral antigenous melanoma. Acral antigenous melanomas occur in places that are easy to miss, like the soles of your feet or under a toenail. It is the most common melanoma in people with dark skin, and at the time was rarely mentioned in popular medical texts. Marley rejected the advice of the doctors to have his toe amputated, which would have hindered his performing career, and instead the nail and the nail bed were removed, and a skin graft was taken from his thigh to cover the area. Despite his illness, he continued to tour. In early May 1980, Marley and the Whalers completed a major tour of Europe, where they played its biggest concert ever, to 100,000 people in Milan, Italy. After Italy, they flew to the U.S., where they were to perform two shows at Madison Square Gardens in New York City as a part of their uprising tour. While in New York, Marley was jogging in Central Park and collapsed. He was taken to the hospital where it was found that his cancer had spread into his brain, lungs, and liver. 
The remainder of the tour was canceled, and Marley sought treatment for the cancer that had spread throughout his body at the clinic of Josef Eisels in Bavaria, Germany. At the clinic, he underwent an alternative cancer treatment called Eisels treatment, which stayed true to his avoidance of certain foods, drinks, and other substances. After eight months of failing to effectively treat his advancing cancer, Marley boarded a plane for Jamaica. During the flight, his condition worsened, and the flight had to stop in Miami, Florida, where he was taken to Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, which is now the University of Miami Hospital, for immediate medical treatment. He died on May 11, 1981, at the age of 36, due to the spread of melanoma to his lungs and brain. Marley's final words were to his son Ziggy, On your way up, take me up. On your way down, don't let me down. Marley was given a state funeral in Jamaica on May 21, 1981, that combined elements of Ethiopian Orthodoxy and Rastafari tradition. He was buried in a chapel near his birthplace in Nine Mile. His casket contained his red Gibson Les Paul guitar, a Bible opened at Psalm 23, and a stock of ganja that was placed in there by his widow Rita. The Prime Minister at the time, Edward Siga, delivered the eulogy at the funeral, saying, his voice was an omnipresent cry in our electronic world. His sharp features, majestic looks, and prancing style, a vivid etching on the landscape of our minds. Bob Marley was never seen. He was an experience which left an indelible imprint with each encounter. Such a man cannot be erased from the mind. He is part of the collective consciousness of the nation. Let's now take a look into Marley's religion and beliefs and get a better foundation of the elements that fit into his life and helped shape his music. We mentioned earlier that Marley was a member of the Rastafari movement and the culture of Rastafari was a key element in the development of reggae music. Rising from the proliferation of Ethiopianism and Pan-Africanism, Rastafarianism took root in Jamaica following the coronation of Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie in 1930. It is a spiritual movement based on the belief of Selassie's divinity and the movement gained global attention thanks to Bob Marley. Although the deaths of Selassie in 1975 and Marley in 1981 took away its most influential figures, Rastafarianism endures through followings all over the world, especially in Africa and the Caribbean. The roots of Rastafarianism can be traced back to the 18th century when Ethiopianism and other movements that emphasized and idealized Africa began to take hold among black slaves in the Americas. For those that had been converted to Christianity, the Bible offered hope through such passages such as Psalm 68:31, foretelling of how princes shall come out of Egypt and Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hand unto God. The ethos began to strengthen throughout the late 19th century, particularly through the teachings of Jamaican-born Marcus Garvey, who told his followers to look to Africa where a black king shall be crowned. He shall be the Redeemer. On November 2, 1930, Rastafari McCohen was crowned Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia. He assumed the titles of King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah, fulfilling the biblical prophecy of a black king that had been emphasized by Garvey. I actually took a class in university on Rastafarianism. It was a pretty good class, actually. The professor was Jamaican. She was very, very knowledgeable. And, um... It's a very immersive class. Like we listened to a lot of music. We listened to like a lot of teachings of like Marcus Garvey. Learned a lot about Haile Selassie. I remember the class well. And I think I still, I kept all my textbooks actually. 
We'll talk more about that class and um, Rastafarianism on a grander scale later on this year, because it's going to get its own episode. When Bob Marley found Rastafari, he converted and he unabashed referenced his beliefs in his songs, achieving widespread acclaim in the 1970s through universally appealing the movement's themes of brotherhood, oppression, and redemption. He became the poster boy for Rastafarian cause, leading a fight for freedom with calls to unity. Prior to the Halle Selassie visit to Jamaica, Bob Marley and the Whalers' music, while having messages of judgment and creating awareness, more of a Christian perspective, their music and Bob took on a different spiritual path. The Rastafarian community worshipped the Ethiopian leader as a living God. Their very name Ras, meaning Lord and Tafari, Selassie's family surname. One of the first things people think of when they hear the word Rasta is ganja, which to the Rastafari culture is the belief that the tree of life is the marijuana plant and that the plant's use is promoted in the Bible. Genesis 3.18 and Exodus 10.12, for example. There are few more recognizable figures in the world of music than Bob Marley. You can find his face and likeness all over the world, on t-shirts, keychains, magnets, and anything else people can sell. You can find monuments and statues of Marley even outside of Jamaica, including Liverpool, England, and Serbia. Serbia? Yes, I found that one interesting too. There's even a Bob Marley restaurant in Orlando, Florida, and another coming soon to Montego Bay's airport. There's something admirable about this strong outlook on the world, and even years after his death, his philosophy and approach to life are still as vital as ever. Not only does his music occupy a precious place in the heart of millions, but the way that he found success by staying true to his Jamaican roots make him a cultural icon who opened the doors of reggae to a worldwide audience. Reggae music began taking over Kingston in the late 1960s, and by the time the new decade rolled around, there was no group more equipped to conquer the world than the Whalers. Their gift for storytelling in their music made them, and Marley, especially as a storyteller, stand out from the rest of the pack. The Eric Clapton cover, I Shot the Sheriff, we mentioned earlier, which incorporated the reggae essence to help make Marley an overnight star. People wanted to know where the original I Shot the Sheriff had come from and who had written it. While Marley wasn't the founder of the reggae genre, he was a pioneer figure who brought the sound to more people than anybody could have ever imagined. Since his passing, his iconic status has only continued to grow. The songs he gave the world have only resonated more with people and generations in another 40 to 50 years. And more, this legacy will somehow evolve even further, touching each generation that falls in love with the message and music. Marley's widow, and now many of his children too, continue in their father's legacy to spread positivity and his message and contribute to movements they strongly believe in. Rita Marley, after Bob's death, took on his estate and business. Under her guidance, the Marley Empire now includes a Bob Marley Museum and the Tuff Gong Recording Studio, both in Kingston, a vinyl and CD pressing plant, record stores and a book division, a ton of family-approved merchandise including cannabis and body care products, headphones and other audio gear, coffee, and even a line of functional mushrooms where they can be legally sold. Rita's a smart lady. A few years after Bob's death, an audit of his estate came up with a mere $250,000. These days, the family empire, which is run by Rita and second oldest child, Sedella, routinely earns at least $20 million a year, which is valued at five times that amount. Damn, 
Rita is a smart lady. Rita Marley has said, I never see myself as Bob Marley's widow. I still feel I'm working with him. I feel I'm still his partner. In 1981, it wasn't regular business practice for a woman to up and take over their husband's business. She wasn't an MBA, and nobody wanted her to go. The industry expected her to shut up and be a widow, said a longtime friend who works for the music division of Tough Gong International. They expected her to sit back and let them run things. She didn't want that. And for that industry, people didn't like her all that much. Rita was born in Cuba, and her parents moved to Jamaica when she was three years old. She studied nursing and sang in the church before joining a vocal group. It was through that group that she met Bob, who already had many singles under his belt, with the Whalers. Rita's group, the Solettes, were coached by Marley on singing and record-making, and even though he was a tough boss, he was drawn to Rita in other ways. He would send her letters through his friends, never directly, to say that he liked her and he wanted to talk to her or come over. It was Rita who also introduced her husband to Rastafarianism. There are so many great Bob Marley songs that resonate with people, each song with its own special message. If I had to pick three favorite songs, I would pick, and it took me a long time to like pick three, um, but Redemption Song, Who the Cap Fit, and Turn Your Lights Down Low. And while I was doing this whole episode, putting them all together, all I did was listen to music, Bob Marley music. I'm like, what songs do I like? But I think depending on how I'm feeling and like what I'm actually doing in life at the moment, how angry I am or how hostile I am, I think my my three favorite songs would possibly change. I feel like mine are like lame. Not lame, but because I like a lot and you said to pick three. So that... I feel like these are well-known. They probably are, but I really love Could You Be Loved, uh, Three Little Birds, and Exodus. But I also love Turn Your Lights Down Low, and there's so many. I can't even think of them right now. There are so many songs, but if you ask anyone their top three songs, everyone's going to have a different top three. With songs that are so full of meaning and lyrics that make you think and question the world around you, every song means something different to whomever's listening. We turned to Rolling Stone to see their top 10 Bob Marley songs, and we weren't surprised at all. And we really don't think you will be either, even if your top picks didn't make their top 10, because really, all the songs are amazing. In at the number 10 position is 1970's Soul Rebel from the Soul Rebels album. This is a defining early song that helped define Marley. The track was produced at Randy's recording studio, also known as Studio 17 in Kingston, Jamaica. The songs were the first collaboration of Scratch Perry and Marley. I really wish we could play the songs, but, you know, like, laws and stuff. In the number nine position is 1977's Natural Mystic from Bob's Exodus album. I really like this one personally. It's the opening track on the album and was originally recorded as a more upbeat version of the song, but was later orchestrated into a more roots reggae song with the backup vocals and horns. In the number eight position is 1983's Buffalo Soldier from the Confrontation album. Marley had started writing this track back in 1978 when he was inspired by the true story of African-American soldiers who served in the Civil War and were ordered to fight Native Americans out west when the war was over. The Native Americans dubbed the troops Buffalo Soldiers for their dark and kinky hair. In the number seven position is Positive Vibration, from 1976's Rastaman Vibration, which was Marley's first commercial smash in America. The album got him onto Billboard's Top Ten for the time. The album got him onto Billboard's Top 10. 
The original LP was packaged in a burlap textured sleeve, which the liner notes tooted as great for cleaning herb. In the number six position is Concrete Jungle from 1973's Catch a Fire, which is a song that tells the world where the whalers were from. The title is a colloquialism used to describe Trench Town's Arnett Gardens housing project, which was built from cheap concrete rather than brick. In the number five position, Rolling Stone lists I Shot the Sheriff from 1973's Burnin'. As mentioned earlier this episode, this is one of Marley's most well-known songs, which started with the cover of the song by Eric Clapton. It goes, I shot the sheriff, boo, 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 but I did not shoot the deputy, woo, woo, except much better than I just did, since we can't play the songs. The origins of the songs are mysterious, but the story goes that Marley wrote the song after learning a former Island Records employee was on birth control. Marley considered the pills sinful and the doctor who prescribed them as the sheriff. In the number four position is 1971's Trench Town Rock. This single is to reggae music what Memphis is to rock and roll. It is a cornerstone of Jamaican music, a story of the hard-bitten Kinston neighborhood of Trench Town. In the number three position is 1980's Redemption Song from the album Uprising. The track is an acoustic folk ballad from the time near the end of Marley's life. Inspired by a 1937 speech by Marcus Garvey, the track's verses are biblical and its lyrics carry a weight that can trump most national anthems. No Woman No Cry comes in at the number two position from the 1975 album Live. The track is said to have been written by Marley while on a plane from Jamaica to London. Marley's credits Tartar Ford, a friend who fed him in his public kitchen in Trenchtown, and Rolling Stone List, Get Up, Stand Up, from 1973's Burnin', the track that may be the most potent song ever about human rights and how to secure them. The song is written by Marley and Peter Tosh, two minds thinking as one. In the words of Chuck D., this song is a battle cry for survival. Bob Marley and the Wailers have an amazing catalog of music, most of the tracks just as great as the next, each track just as powerful and meaningful as the next. Bob Marley and his music and his message will carry on for generations and eons to come. We may never hear music as powerful as Marley's in our own lifetime or yours. And with that, thank you for tuning in to today's episode, everyone. We hope you've liked what you've heard today, including Vanessa's singing, and are inspired to listen or re-listen to the Marley catalog. Please remember to follow or subscribe to Mixed DNA Podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, and leave us a rating or review wherever possible. Also, please follow us on social media, Facebook or Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast, where each week we post relevant content pertaining to each week's episode. Thanks again, everyone, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.